Good morning once again. I want to hit real quickly on some dates that are coming up for our REACH initiative. Um, As David prayed for us earlier, um, if you can go to those dates there. um, Matt, there we go. Um, Next week, there's going to be some printed information that will go into your hands that kind of talks about what we're doing and why we're doing. And um, so you're going to be able to get that next week. Um, The following um, that week, our 40 days of prayer and fasting is going to begin as we begin to pray for um, this time. Not just that what we're doing will be successful but that God will use this day and this time in the life of our church for years and years to come. And then September 30th is going to be our big Reach Sunday where we're going to um, give everything we have to this project. And um, like we said a few weeks ago, we might have a few more of these days over the next several years, but um, we want to have this this big day. Rather than doing this long, dry-not campaign, um, we want to just give graciously as God has blessed us. And then October 7th is our first day. We're going to be in gate 11. And so um, those are some really important days coming up that you really want to know about. The other thing I want to say, um, this is for me the conclusion of five years here at Shiloh Road. And I just want to say on behalf of my family, my wife, my children, thank you so much for loving us for caring for us, for walking along with us, for entrusting me with the joy that I get to preach to this this incredible group of people week after week. And I just want to say thank you so much. You are loved by my family and appreciated greatly. So thank you. So we're going to begin a new series this morning um, as we talk about the gospel. Um, Everyone loves to get good news. Um, For most of you, you've been on the receiving end of getting good news. And for others of you, you've gotten to experience giving good news. But one of the things that good news does, it speaks hope into our lives. And so many times, good news comes at these moments where we feel despair and we are questioning. And so this word, good news, in the original Greek language is the word euangelion. And it means and translated gospel or good news in our New Testament. And so over the next six weeks, I want to kind of unpack this word and look at what it meant to its original writers and what it meant for the implications that it had around the world, not just in the moment that it was spoken, but for generations and generations to come. I want to look at what was meant when Isaiah the prophet spoke to a people and he said, God has anointed me or God has prepared me to bring this good news to the world. Or what the Apostle Paul said, for, he, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. Or what Jesus meant when he said, the time has come, repent, or the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So what was meant when this word gospel, euangelion, good news, was first spoken thousands of years ago? But before we get there, I need to tell you a couple of stories. They're separated by about 2,000 years. The first one occurred in 1987. And I was home from sick home from school sick. Like, like sick 
deathbed, like not able to make it. But, but maybe in that sickness, able to muster just enough strength to get in a few minutes on your new Nintendo NES that you had gotten for Christmas. See, for the last several months, I had been playing my Nintendo trying to win Super Mario Brothers. N- not any of this new stuff, but like the original Nintendo NES Super Mario Brothers. And I was trying, and I was in a race with my friend Josh to see who could win the game, who could make it to the end, and who could save the princess. And so I was not feeling well this day. I was home from school, but thankfully my Nana was there to take care of me because her favorite grandson was sick, and she needed to watch over him and make sure that he was okay. And you might ask, why do you remember this one day in particular? Was this the only day that you were home from school sick? No, no, that wasn't it. Did you have to go to the doctor and endure the trauma of getting a shot? No, that, that wasn't it either. My friends, that was the day that I saved the princess. Because I, for the first time, came face to face with the infamous King Koopa. And I, with my nimble, feeble, sickly fingers, dodged and weaved and jumped over a barrage of fireballs and hammers the likes of which have never been seen on any battlefield probably before or since. And I rescued the princess. And I had this incredible sense of joy that began to well up inside of me. And I had to tell someone this incredible news. And so I ran into my Nana, who was watching her show. is the sands of the hourglass. So are the days of our lives. And I exclaimed to my grandmother in the most exciting third grade voice possible, Nana, I did it. I beat King Koopa and I saved the princess. And she said, that's great, honey. Now let me watch my show. And I thought, wait a minute. I I have this incredible, earth-shattering moment where I've won Super Mario Brothers, and she doesn't care. And so I thought, I'm going to go call my friend Josh. And so I walked out the door of my room into our hallway, and I dialed on a phone, a number that I had memorized, on a phone that was touch-tone and connected to a cord in our wall and I said Josh well sorry his mom Kathy answered the phone and Kathy said yes I said this is Gary is Josh there she said no Gary Josh is at school why are you not at school I'm sick 
can I give Josh a message for you? Can you tell Josh, I won Super Mario Brothers, and I saved the princess? She said, yes, I'll give him that message. And everyone who needed to hear this message, this incredible feat, after all, my fail, in my failed attempts, I had this one success, this great moment where I, in this noble act, which I would compare to Jordan's game six with the flu, I saved the princess. But yet no one around me seemed to care. No one was excited. No one was proud. No one really cared how incredible a feat I had accomplished. Fast forward. I'm sorry, rewind the story. About 2,000 years. The year is 49 B.C. And the world is seeing this rise in this new global superpower called Rome. And a man named Julius Caesar sits atop this powerful empire. Yet he never becomes emperor. Because in 44 BC, 60 members of the Roman Senate decide that they are going to assassinate Caesar. And they send two of the senators, Cassius and Brutus, to assassinate this would-be Roman emperor. And what happens over the course of the next several years is Rome becomes embattled in this massive civil war. And at first, it's a battle to avenge the assassination and death of Caesar. And so, rising to power is Caesar's adopted son named Octavian, who is the rightful heir to the throne. And Caesar's, Julius Caesar's good friend, Mark Antony. And they form this alliance to, fat, to battle both Brutus, Brutus and Cassius, sorry. And they conquer and they win. But after this alliance is formed and they have defeated these assassins, there is a division between them. And they both go their separate ways trying to secure the power of Rome to themselves, trying to become the emperor. And the decisive moment comes in the year 31 BC in a naval battle off what is now modern-day Greece. And Octavian's army defeats Mark Antony's, I'm sorry, navy, defeats Mark Antony's navy. And because of this defeat, Antony and Cleopatra they flee to modern-day Egypt, where they both commit suicide, leaving Octavian to be the heir and eventually become what we know as Augustus Caesar, the emperor of Rome. Now, if you lived in Rome during this time period, you would have heard rumors of the battle that was going on between Antony and Octavian. And rumors that would have massive implications for your life and for the rest of the world and for the other cities involved. And so you waited for news from the front line. And if you were a friend of Caesar, a friend of Julius or Octavian, 
then you wanted to hear the good news that Octavian had won the battle and was going to be emperor. And if you were not friends of Caesar, if you were friends of Antony, you did not want to hear that news because that news could affect your life forever. It had massive implications. And so finally, the battle is won and news starts to trickle back because they didn't have mass communication systems that we have in place. So word of mouth begins to move from city to city and news begins to go out. And it's not for another four years till 27 BC when Octavian will actually become Augustus Caesar, the emperor of the Roman Empire. But the word begins to trickle out. And these announcements would be made in these cities around the Roman Empire. And it was called the Euangelion. It was the good news. It's the word we have for gospel. It was an announcement. It was a proclamation that Julius Caesar's son, Octavian, had won. The battle had been won, and Caesar is Lord of all. Caesar rules the empire. You can imagine, this had massive implications for whoever would hear this message. Massive implications. Because this announcement, this proclamation that Caesar was now king, that Caesar was over all, meant that everything from this point forward was going to change. You see, for news to be classified as news, it has four criteria that it meets. First, in its announcement, it's an announcement of an event that has happened. Second, there's a larger context or a backstory within which this story makes sense. Third, there's a sudden unveiling of a new future that now lies ahead. And fourth, there's a transformation of a present moment that sits between the event that had happened and the future reality that will happen. And so for this news to be proclaimed meant that now Octavian, in this decisive battle, had become emperor within the midst of this larger backstory of a civil war that had stretched for 13 years. And this new news that was going to come that Augustus Caesar was emperor of the Roman world. And so for these people, as they hear this announcement, there is this waiting for how is this going to happen? What is it going to look like for us? How is our world going to change in the waiting? This larger backstory, because that's how news works. Caesar had brought peace and prosperity and justice. The Pax Romana. He brought the peace of Rome to the world. And he killed lots of people to do it. So here, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, as he begins talking about the good news in the context of this world where Caesar is Lord, where the good news is proclaimed about Caesar, he says this, Now, brothers and sisters, 
I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. He literally begins by saying, the gospel I gospeled. The first time he uses the word euangelion, it's a noun. The gospel I, and the second time he uses the word euangelizo, which is the verb form that I preached. It's the gospel that I gospeled. It's the announcement that I announced. It's the proclamation that I proclaimed. And what is that proclamation that I proclaimed? It's this. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So this is the good news This is the gospel that he preached, that he proclaimed about Jesus, that he died, that he was buried, that he was raised, that he appeared. These four different events that all point to something that is going to happen. This has happened. Jesus has died. Jesus has been buried. Jesus has been raised. Jesus has appeared. And because of that, there are some things that are going to change in the way the world works. And with it, he keeps saying this phrase, that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, what, what does he mean according to the scriptures? What does what Paul's according to the scriptures mean? See, it's not the New Testament. But it's what we would call the Old Testament. Paul speaks so profoundly from the deep well of Israel's scriptures. Over a hundred times, he directly quotes from the Hebrew scriptures, from the Old Testament. And he makes hundreds of allusions and, and examples from that Old Testament. Speaking about what was going to happen. It's the story of Israel. It's this larger story that this story makes sense within. And so he makes this announcement that, that Christ has died. Christ was buried. Christ was raised. And that then he appeared to all these people who saw him. And, and real quickly, and we'll, we'll touch on this a little more. What, what does it mean when he talks about um, forgiving us of our sins? Um, I, I think a, a, several things. Jesus died with us, this idea of identification. Jesus died instead of us, representation or substitution. And then Jesus died for us. And it's the idea of the incorporation into the life of God. David Taylor, I think, is doing atonement theories right now. And that's atonement theories. Um, But Paul's story, Paul's story doesn't just encompass 
this one event, these, these several days. He's not just simply pointing to these events that happened. He's also pointing to the bigger story of the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the resurrection, and what the implications of that are for the whole world. That this event has changed everything. And I think we, get, we fall into this trap at times of talking about what Jesus' death did in these events. But understand the gospel centers around not just some events that happened, but it centers around a person. This son of a carpenter, this Jesus of Nazareth, this rabbi, this son of God. And everything in the world revolved around this story because of what happened in this moment, in his death. And, and here's what he gets to at the end in verse 20. He says, but Christ indeed has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. <clears throat> For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then in the end, the, the end will come. And when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put everything, all his enemies, under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And, and I think we often miss that, that this event changed everything. And it centered around this person in this proclamation. In the midst of an empire that stood and proudly proclaimed the good news that Caesar had won the victory and Caesar is Lord, you have this small fraction of people rising up from the midst of the Roman Empire in this small corner of the world who are saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is divine. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus brings his peace. Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. See, the first century narrative If it was someone else's kid, it's fine. Where were we? So the first century, this good news, this gospel was Caesar is Lord. Caesar saves. This announcement to gospel for Paul was to announce, to proclaim, to shout from the rooftops, that Caesar, not Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. Can you imagine what began to happen in this empire as they began to hear this message? I think it's why Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians by saying this, we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And the word he uses here for stumbling block literally means offensive or scandalous. You think, well, why offensive or scandalous? Because if you are God's son, if you are Messiah, if you are blessed by God, you don't die. That's the exact opposite. If you claim to be Messiah and you die, that just simply means you're cursed by God. So he says this is offensive or scandalous to these Jews. And then there's these others that it's just like foolishness. It's like a third grader running up to their grandmother who's 80-something years old and saying, Nana, Nana, I beat the game. That's great, dear. Now leave me alone and let me watch my show. It's foolishness. Why? Because every single day there is someone revolting against the empire. There is someone rising up to take on Caesar. There is someone who's trying to claim power. And every single time it happens, they are crushed beneath Caesar's army and Caesar's power. It's foolishness. It's scandalous. But he says, for those who are being saved, this is the power and the wisdom of God. That God brought salvation into the world through his son. So this message that goes out sounds something like this. Here is the good news. Jesus is Lord. And as you can imagine, it's met with so much skepticism. Jesus is Lord. The one Rome hung on a cross. Yeah, that, that, that one. Wait, wait, wait. If he's king, here, here's newsflash. Kings don't die. And if a king is a king and he dies, guess what? He's no longer king. No, 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 no. Listen, here's the good news. That Rome, that the re- religious establishment, they put him on a cross. And we put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And he's alive. I think the New Testament writers, they want you to understand that this wasn't Christ dying in his divinity. That it was Christ dying in his humanity. And in that, Christ dies and he enters into death. And he fills death with himself. So that in death, all you find is Christ And through his death and resurrection, there is this beautiful thing that's happening where God is resurrecting people. 
and he's bringing them back to life. And he makes this beautiful connection. I think we just kind of read through and we miss. He says, for if the dead, verse 17, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And somehow Paul goes in and he ties forgiveness of sins and resurrection. And you think, well, why are they connected? Why do they have to go together? Because think about this. Go back to Genesis or even Romans. What is the the cost of sin? It's death. And so the only way to be pulled out of death, the only way to be set free from death, is either to be sinless or to be filled with sin and have it forgiven. They have to be connected. You cannot have resurrected life without forgiveness. And those people who confess Jesus as Lord, and they die in those waters, and they're raised into new life, they're not just forgiven of their sin. They're given this new life on the other side of their sin. They're given this life that they're set free from everything that they've done wrong and everything that they will do wrong and that their past is not counted against them. And the things that they've done right and the things that they've done wrong, there's this new start. And from then on, everything else in the world, everything else that happens will be different because of this one moment, this gospel that I gospeled to you, this gospel that I proclaimed to you, that I preached to you, that Christ died, that Christ was buried, that Christ was raised, and that he appeared, and that he is resurrecting this world. Now listen, listen. I think one of the things we've done in our Americanized individualistic society is we have so individualized the gospel and made it so much about what God did for me that we've missed maybe the beauty and the majesty and even the mystery of the cross. Because we've made the cross so much about getting rid of something that existed rather than creating a possibility of something that prior to that moment did not exist. We've made the cross about getting rid of our sin rather than the possibility of the cross creating a world without sin. That we would stand in Christ made clean. Not for me but for a bigger proclamation we become so consumed with the idea that Jesus is Savior that I think many times we miss the fact that Jesus is Lord and that he has called you and I to submit to his rule and reign. 
not just surrendering our sins, but surrendering our whole life and saying, here I am. Recreate me. Make me new. Maybe my news of liberating the world of the tyranny and oppression of King Koopa and saving the two-inch pixelated princess would pale in comparison to the proclamation that Caesar is Lord. But this proclamation that Caesar is Lord, it had an expiration date. It had a time where that rule and reign will come to end. But in conquering death and placing everything under his feet, there's now a kingdom that has no end and that will go on and on and on because of the good news that Jesus is alive. As we start this series, I just want to simply ask this question. Who or what have you submitted your life to? Who is your Lord? Who is your master? Is it work? Is it sex? Is it your image? Is it your stability? Is it materialism or sex or money or the American way? Or is it politicians or presidents or sports or children? What is it that you pour your life out for? What is it you surrendered and submitted your life to? Because Jesus calls you to himself and says, submit to me and put everything under me because everything is already under me. It's just a question of whether or not you realize it. And now live into this world that up until this proclamation, up until this announcement, a world that could not and did not exist, a world set free from the power of sin, a world that you've been called to step into, I want to just invite you to stand with me for just a moment. And as you're standing, I want to invite our shepherds and ministry staff to the back of the auditorium. Um, see, this, this gospel, this good news, it changed everything from that point forward. Nothing would ever be the same again because of this one announcement. And it asks the question, who or what have you submitted your life to? Paul points out how important this message is. It's the same thing that John the Revelator says in Revelation. He says, the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our God and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever 
Father, today, in this place, Father, we submit our life to you. All of it. The stuff we want to hold on to, the stuff that that we think gives us strength, the the things that we think make us alive. And Father, we surrender them to you. Knowing our strength, our salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. And so, Father, we submit. We give you our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As always, the invitation is there. Come to the water. Be made new. Begin a new life. If we could pray for you as well, we have ministry staff, shepherds around the back of the auditorium. We would love just to put our arm around you and pray over you, pray for you. If you need a little more time, we're going to have shepherds um, in our gathering, and you can go there as well. Whatever you need, come while we sing. God sent His Son. They called Him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon and empty grace.